Hello, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome back for another episode. Agnes, how are you? I am good, thank you. How are you, Ben? I'm great. I'm still buzzing from our, our weekend excursion. We had an undercurrent school trip, guys. It was... Uh, Where did we go, Ben? It was ben? joyous. We went to the Royal Opera House. We did. It was wonderful. To see some to see some excellent Wagner, I have to say. It was my first Wagner, so I don't have much to compare it to. But from what I heard, I liked. Four and a half hours of Lohengrin. Yeah, yeah, um, and a lot of G&Ts. Yeah. But uh, quite sublime, actually. Yeah, phenomenal horns. Yeah, outrageous. They had brass sections the coming brass. out of their ears. All, all oh. in like, every box. It was kind of wonderful. Yeah, and also... And, uh, the staging help, was good. Yeah, and helped with my theory that all men in opera are incels. Ah, yes. Would and you I... like to expand on that? <laughs> so is that just plot-wise or just an impression you get? Just a vibe they give off? Yeah, it's, no, it's an absolute <laughs> vibe. I mean, if you think about La Boheme or Carmen or any of those things, it is, you know, Lerngrin, this Wagner, it's, I love you, let's get married, just don't ask me my name or any questions. Yeah, you know. And then the women always let them down, they Maybe get really he's angry. Shy. Maybe he's shy. No, and then they end up murdering women because they want to run off with somebody else. They mm. just have the souls of incels. I think it would be fair to assume that uh, if Wagner met the guys from Queer Eye, <laughs> it would be an interesting exchange. Oh I would God. watch that episode, I mean, them trying to trying to reform Wagner. I would say you're watching all the episodes anyway, Ben. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that would be a great look in, insight into modern masculinity. It I would. Think. It would indeed. There we go, a um, bit of highbrow and lowbrow culture great. for I mean, you there, yeah, guys. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I really see that distinction. <laughs> they're both, uh, they're both uh, the zenith of their respective art forms. One hundred percent. So, so yeah, but uh, we are actually here to do an episode of Undercurrents <laughs> and to actually talk about some quite serious issues. Unlike, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so your light really Get on with it. So yes. Um, so who did you speak to, Ben? Well. I, well, together. Together. Oh my gosh! Sorry, I, we did it together. There's Ask a lot again. of me on this. I'm, I apologise. Don't worry. Um, yeah, Agnes. Agnes is monopolising the pod. <laughs> I don't know if she's trying to tell me something. I apologise if my interviewing style is deficient, but she's just she's always here now. She's always I'm sitting. Sorry. In, she's always sort of seeing these people and going. Don't listen to Ben's do, questions. Do send us a reply if you feel like there's too much Agnes Frimston. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, and indeed. I, I, my mother will, so not not you, Mum. We'll set up a Twitter else. poll. Yeah. Sorry, right. Ben, who did we speak to this podcast this episode? Week, we spoke about an incredible initiative from the Global Economy and Finance Programme called the Gender and Growth Initiative, and specifically an international policy forum that the people from that initiative run every year, developing new policies to empower women in the workplace and to challenge the various gender gaps that affect women's engagement with the global economy mm. yeah. yeah from a very economic sort of perspective absolutely and yeah. um and so we spoke to the uh, program leader stefan dubois and uh, also roxanne bilden from the program and it was a great exchange yeah interesting great to see the sort of practical side of an initiative like that yeah and sort of what goes into putting on a conference yeah. like that yeah as as well as discussing sort of the bigger issues what they're trying to do particularly with the g20 yeah yeah absolutely so that was great but then you went off and did your own interview as well yeah which i wasn't allowed to go to <laughs> i would say actually you were on holiday I don't remember that. When this happened, anyway. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but, yes. Uh, and so who did you speak to? So I spoke to the Minister for International Development, Alastair Burt, MP, who you may remember famously resigned over Syria a couple of years ago. Right. But is now back in the Foreign Office. Our first government minister. Yes, absolutely. Very great of him to give us, give us some time. Fantastic opportunity, yeah. yeah. Because the Stabilisation Unit has just released a new report called Dealmaking and Peacebuilding, a new approach to reducing conflict. Alice Burke came to Chatham House to give a speech on what, what that sort of meant. Mm. And so we discussed that. And what is the stabilisation unit? Okay, so it's a it's a cross um, government unit, sort of supporting UK government efforts to tackle instability overseas. Right. Well, yeah. let's have a listen. Mm-hmm. 
Right, so I'm here with the Right Honourable Alcibert MP, who is Minister of State for International Development and Minister of State for the Middle East and North Africa, the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, thanks for asking. And we're here to talk about a new stabilisation unit report. Could you introduce it for us? Yes, we asked the stabilisation unit to do uh, a bit of work about conflict prevention and conflict reductions. We're particularly seized at the moment with the sense that in so many areas, conflict is long lasting Mm -hmm. and that when conflict comes to an end, it doesn't always go well after that. That in trying, sometimes you find you fail to end a conflict as quickly as you should. And sometimes when a conflict does end, it doesn't last. So we looked at how you might end conflict more quickly, what you had to take into account. And we looked at both successes and failures of conflict coming to an end to see what provides the best opportunity of conflict ending being long-lasting. Was there anything in particular that you focused on, well, that this report focused on when it came to results or what you thought were the key, like, things to pull out of it? The big thing we, uh, I I think, that uh, we we found and we wanted to, to factor is something that seems blindingly obvious but isn't always um, adhered to in practice and th- this is really understanding what we call the uh, the elites in various countries, those people who command significant power to understand the relationships of them to each other, to their peoples uh, and therefore truly bring that knowledge into an understanding of what sometimes as external actors you're trying to do in resolve a conflict. And what we found was that in areas where that was well understood, there was a chance of long-term success. But in areas where that wasn't understood and where peace bargains were put together that looked good but failed to grasp what the underlying politics were, that peace determination, which came too early because there hadn't been a political uh, resolution and therefore you were trying to put something on top that just wasn't going to work, Uh, The paper brings out some of those areas of successes and failures in order to provide ministers and the UK government with a new set of analytical tools to help in policy uh, formation. And particularly, we were confronting the difficult issue of how you deal with bad guys, Mm. how you deal with the reality of situations, that sometimes the people you have to deal with are people who are really not very good. But uh, if you're going to get a proper solution for the people you're trying to protect... You have to take them into account. And there must be a fine line between engaging with and endorsing bad guys. Absolutely. I, and I, I think that's fundamental. And I, I did sort of include a, a, a phrase in the speech to say that you can support dialogue and you can support processes without endorsing, legitimising or giving recognition to those whose values you abhor. But you can recognise that there are times when including them in a dialogue process doesn't imply recognition but is actually important if you want to get to an end result. I wanted to ask you about bottom-up legitimacy. It's not a phrase I've come across very often in the Foreign <laughs> Office, but I will give it a, give it a look now. Because how, how do we know externally that the, the individuals that we might be talking to have legitimacy on the ground within the nation that we're talking... I mean, Libya comes to mind. That's a really good question. A variety of different things enable you to to get that sense. Um, You've got to employ people locally. Uh, You've got to use people who know the region well and experts. You've got to rely on intelligence uh, and information. Uh, Sometimes there are long-standing structures that give you a sense, for instance, the tribes that operate in the the Middle East. you know they're 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 very real. They have power. They have communities. They have uh, structures that lead to decision making in which power is conveyed from the bottom up to those who advance them. I, I think, in my experience, having been in the Foreign Office on and off since 2010, knowledge is really really important. Not making assumptions, doing your homework, and getting the answers to the very questions you, you, you raise. But it is a question that is often raised when you're looking at someone coming forward and you're considering known individuals. Well, who are they really? 
how much power do they wield? Because, of course, people will dress it up in a variety of different ways. So I think the short answer to the question, local knowledge, intelligence, that tells you the answer. Mm. And what's the role of institutions in this environment? Because I think sometimes if you are dealing with individuals, you can undermine the role of institutions. I think in some cases not to over, uh, not to overplay the concept of institutions. We like them because we've grown up with them here uh, and we've built them. Um, but they've been hard won uh, in over many centuries in the United Kingdom. Uh, and we reside power in them because it's better to put power in institutions rather than individuals. And we limit the power of individuals through our structures. There are countries where there are very few institutions. There can be places that have names, but they're not really functioning as institutions. I think our role in these cases is to distinguish between the two. Always to be seeking to build up institutions, because long term, that is a better answer. But also being realistic, knowing that in some places, it will be strong individuals who will make the weather and with whom you have to deal. And if these are the right individuals, and if they can show a capacity for good governance that may over time imply a transfer of power to institutions uh, through an understanding that this is the best way to secure the future for their people, then well and good. But I, I think it's horses for courses, um, being acutely aware that something that calls itself a parliament may not actually be functioning like a parliament that we have in Westminster. Mm-hmm. And I that may be a good or bad thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned in your speech and in the report that the order of how you do things is very important. Um, and And does that mean that sometimes you have to let violence play out or issues within a, within a nation play out? Well, let me look at a specific example of Libya. Um, I was the uh, minister working to uh, William Hague between 2010 and 2013 when uh, uh, Libya became part of what was known as the, the Arab Spring. The government's been much criticised following uh, events in Libya for not uh, ensuring peace and for Libya being in the situation it is. I feel some of this criticism is unfair. I I would do. I was there. I was able to see what happened. But we sought very hard to build up institutions and we sought to bring forward elections to put in place a uh, transitional government at a very early stage because we thought it was the right thing to do. And we worked hard with people locally. We relied on on local information to do this. There were no boots on the ground. It was dealing with uh, those in, uh, in Libya. But we had not fully understood all the local connections and the relationships between politicians, between militia, between regions. We thought we did and we worked very hard, but in hindsight, clearly we didn't. Mm-hmm. And it meant the bargains that were that were formed didn't actually work. And in, therefore violence returned to a degree. I think it's very hard to ask a democratic government to accept that there are places where violence continuing is better than no violence. I'm sure the short answer to that is that's never the case. And you must always work for a negotiated settlement for a political answer. But in reality, there will be times when you'll have to understand that you can advocate it, you can plead for it, you can set up the uh, the structures. But there may be moments that you will have to stand back and let something... Uh, and Not let something happen, because you're not a party to it, but things will happen that will allow a better chance of peace in due course. As I say, I don't think you can advocate it. I think you can understand it. uh, And you should be looking to build upon it as soon as you can. A lot of the... Well, I think the main argument that is made in this report and what you sort of mentioned earlier, it relies on intelligence, really, and very good local knowledge. Diplomats aren't that popular at the moment, necessarily, especially in the US. How do you think the role of diplomacy plays into this sort of thinking? <laughs> well, we're not all Americans. No, um, no not all Americans, sorry. Uh, I can only go off, off, off what experience I have. And working with you know top-class diplomats in very difficult situations around the Middle East, the best of them are open uh, and thoughtful. Uh, if they have very strong convictions, they're aware that others have different ones and they can sort them through. They come to conclusions and they they work them through. But always they're conscious of needing the intelligence on the ground to give them information. 
and um, in the best of places, you will find intelligence being sifted again and again and again from those who provide it for us. And there's a lot of people operating in all sorts of different ways. It's not all derived from agents or anything like that. Intelligence is a wide subject. Commercial uh, information is very important. What What's actually happening at grassroots level in terms of how markets are operating and what's happening locally and who does hold sway over a neighbourhood and everything like this. Um, essential. And then fed through to, to good diplomats who can use it. Um, there are diplomats and diplomats. Um, I must say I like working with professional diplomats. There are some politicians who are diplomats and, you know, particularly in... Uh, I mean, there are some in the US context and there are some diplomats who are intensely political but there are also diplomats who are just diplomats, uh, behind the scenes, hugely influential. Uh, I think we are very well served in the UK by those who work for our external uh, facing groups, You know, whether it's uh, obviously FCO and DFID, but also other departments that operate overseas who provide the information and everything else. And my experience is in many places, particularly around the Middle East, uh, UK diplomats are welcomed because we, we are prepared to tell the truth. Um, we're not always the richest, the most powerful, but people do go to us. We do know some areas of the world very well. Um, and I think providing providing we're always conscious that we may not always be right, there are other people's points of view, and that we recognise uh, that uh, recognise the limitations of our knowledge at any particular stage, then I think we've got a good base for dealing with people in the future. But there are times to be tough as well. Um, I think sometimes this can be misinterpreted as you know, thinking the best of all possible people in all possible worlds. Um, you can't operate in the Middle East if that's your sense. Uh, there are bad people. Uh, there are people who hurt people. And there are people who uh, obtain power and keep power through the most uh, outrageous of methods. Uh, and the United Kingdom has got to be very clear that it has no party to that. Uh, and we will need to be very direct. Sometimes we're direct in public, sometimes we're direct in private but there are people with whom it is very difficult uh, to work uh, and there are standards that have to be have to be kept and we have to be honest enough to say so there are other means of sort of non-violent intervention sanctions sort of come to mind mm. how do you think they would play in with this sort of idea of a focus on power players um Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I, I think the world has moved away from generalised sanctions, which only provide an opportunity for very smart people to get around them uh, and create a whole new industry, to individual sanctions can be quite well targeted. I think if you look at key individuals in a power structure uh, whose way of life can be quite disruptive by preventing them travelling, the European Union has used sanctions quite extensively to stop people coming to Paris, going to Rome, to those people who are uh, uh, um, abusing their own systems and making money uh, um, illegally to prevent them having the lifestyle that that would, uh, that would uh, imply. So the, the individual personal sanctions, I think, can have a difference uh, and be used. Targeted trade sanctions, you've got to be really careful how they're used. I think there are some ways, I think some people think that they're the answer to everything and they're not. But they do pose some hard questions because if you don't go for that what do you go for and does that lead you more quickly to uh, a, a route of conflict which really you want to avoid horses for courses again mm -hmm. and do you think there are because in many ways no offense this is not new you know in it is and it's wonderful but we have been using this in in conflicts for years and years and years you know the the idea of a focus on dialogue do you think there are any examples where it's worked really well in the past I think what the paper does is, uh, by going through examples, uh, you, you say nothing new, but using evidence of failure in a way brings you to something new. We've looked at places where, uh, where it's gone wrong, a variety of examples in the paper, in Iraq, Libya, and we've looked ahead to some examples perhaps in Latin America where things have been more successful. So if there was nothing new and if the elements of this paper were universally followed and universally successful, then yes, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The point is that uh, I think looking at power elites as we have in this paper and looking at the places where their position has not been fully understood and this issue of sequencing has got out of kilter, 
and where we've tried to assume things that haven't worked, where we've assumed there is a linear uh, uh, line from conflict to, to peace. We've got things wrong. So what's new about this is pointing that out and saying, look harder at the examples of success, Sierra Leone, Bosnia, places such as that, and compare them with places where things have gone wrong and apply some of these examples. There's no blueprint here. As we've made clear, it isn't a policy paper, it's a tool. And we will find, as, as some of the lessons here are applied, things that work better than others. But as I say, I think what's new is, is trying really to get people to understand that dealing with the uh, those who can make the elite bargains is really, really important. And there are things we've probably taken for granted in the past, and it's requiring us to look harder at those things before we come to decisions and judgments. The world of international affairs is quite often quite depressing. So we always try and ask a positive question at the end of an interview. What are you excited about in the world? What gives you sort of hope and enthusiasm? <laughs> a really good question. Um, the best answer I can give is that when I go uh, abroad, when I'm touring the Middle East, I will often have a session with young people uh, sometimes chiefening scholars and others who are brought together for a session with the uh, with the ambassador and, uh, and myself, and we go round the houses and we talk about the future. And recently, that's been Jordan, it's been Algeria, it's been Israel, it's been uh, occupied Palestinian territories. In virtually every case, I end up being enthused by the young people that I speak to. Uh, I find them these days challenging, they're quite open about their own states, but most of the time they're enthusiastic. Uh, there was one country I was in recently where a minister was worried about young people wanting to emigrate from his country. And I spoke to the young people later on the same day and I got a completely different impression. They didn't want to leave at all. They were excited about their country. They thought it had real opportunities. Everything wasn't rosy, but they were looking forward to it. And I suppose that's the, that's the encouraging. For most young people, they do understand the world is theirs. We're maybe not leaving it in as great a place as we would like to, and our generation is doing the best it can, but uh, we're having to deal with some difficult things. But they have a sense that they're going to want to make something of it. They're growing up with technology that we never did. They're, they're growing up realising that in many places a more diverse lifestyle, an acceptance, a greater tolerance is the way forward because they see examples of where that is failing and causing grief and confrontation and they want to move away from it. They see opportunities through business in a different way and they're looking at power in a different way. I think that's quite encouraging. So, as so often, the answer is in the young and, as I say, that's been my personal experience and personal reflections quite recently. Thank you so much, Alistair Burt, for coming to talk to us and ending on a positive note. Thank you for asking. OK, so now I'm joined by Stéphane Dubois, who is the manager of the Gender and Growth Initiative in the Global Economy and Finance Department at Chatham House, and Roxanne Bilden, who is at the Global Economy and Finance Department, and obviously joined by my colleague Agnes. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. This is Hello. our first joint interview it on the is. podcast. I know. It's going to go really well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've not worked out a system. We probably should have got like a like a puppet or something that we hold when we want to talk <laughs> so that we take, properly take it in turns. Yeah, hands up. Yeah, exactly. Hands, up. hands. Yeah, I think that's the way. Um, but Stefan, Roxanne, thanks very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having um, us. We're here today to talk about... Um, the annual international policy forum that the Gender and Growth Initiative runs, which this year is titled No Going Back, Making Gender Equality Happen. So, Stefan, do you think we could begin just by talking a bit about what the policy forum is um, and what the Gender and Growth Initiative is and where that's come from? OK, thanks for asking the question, because it's always slightly tricky to explain the whole context in which we work. The a former head of global economy and finance started working very closely with the G20 in 2013, uh, looking at the fact that nobody took into consideration gender. So it was very gender neutral, everything that was done, uh, just they made decisions based on economic, financial reasons, but didn't take into consideration the 
burden that this could bring to women or understand also that women were not just a burden, but actually could contribute significantly to their growth targets. So there were a couple of uh, events that were organized. The first one was in 2014 uh, during Australia's presidency of the G20. And it was in many ways a success because it brought to the forefront the notion of gender inclusive growth. People had been talking about it in different uh, areas. The IMF had started, the World Bank, and you know a, a number of people. It's not exclusively to, but there was a focus, a specific focus during a G20 presidency, and that mm-hmm. was the important moment. A number of recommendations were presented to the G20, among which the one that's come to be known as the 25 by 25 commitment, and that is to reduce the gap in labor force participation by 25% by 2025. So that was adopted by the G20. It is a commitment and uh, hopefully everybody's working towards it (laughs) for 2025. Um, So that was really the first manifestation, shall we say, of uh, Chatham House's work that it did in collaboration with the Australia National University. What became obvious during the discussions is that there was a definite need for a push for more policy options uh, to support women going back to the, either going back or entering the workforce Mm -hmm. and the formal workforce. So one of the suggestions that was presented, and here it may be a good thing to explain a little bit how the G20 works. I know many people will know, but for the people who don't know, it's like this big group and nobody really what do they do? Where do they go? How are they built? How do yeah, they function? Absolutely. We've just had mm-hmm. the G7 summit sure. and mm-hmm. it's quite difficult to understand why it ended up like it did and mm-hmm. what, what it does. So let's go back to uh, to the beginning. Uh, the G20 is a group that was formerly, that formerly became a leader summit group in mm-hmm. 2008 at the moment of the financial crisis. It had been created in 1998, but in 2008, it was really felt that something had to be done uh, because the situation was bad. What is interesting is that it not only involves the G7 countries, Mm -hmm. developed economies, but also brings uh, emerging economies and considers them as equal partners in this. Mm -hmm. So historically, it was a really important moment and if I give you an idea of um, the countries, we, we've got 19 countries plus the European Union. Mm-hmm. So these countries are Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, Germany, France, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Russia, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> well, you can see. Yeah, exactly. That. Congratulations. Alphabetical order yeah. also. Just, just to jump in, actually, I have a question on that. Um, how were the sort of the developing economies chosen? By what means do you qualify as a member of the club, in a sense? Certain level of GDP, etc., okay. etc. Mm. Emerging um, economies. Yeah. What's also important is that the G20 economies account for 85% of the global economy. Mm-hmm. So right. it is a big, big chunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 75% of world trade and two-thirds of the world population. Mm-hmm. So any action you have within, and it is successful, within the G20 has major impact mm-hmm. on all this chunk of population, GDP, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So, so that was a can I just jump in now? Um, so obviously that's a quite a, a mix of countries with very differing views, we could say, towards mm-hmm. women and gender equality. How are they all working together on this idea? Well, one could say if we look at the world in a bit of a cynical way, um, last year was uh, there was a major achievement in as much as in the communique there was a full page on uh, women and uh, women's economic empowerment. So that was... A major achievement, mm. not a line, not a sentence, but a full page on it. Mm. <laughs> um, Sadly, really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if if you take that, one could say that well, it's probably one of the few themes on which 
the G20 could agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, trade was difficult because the United States had already started talking about their different position and so on and so forth. Climate change is also a problem. So it, it was definitely one on which, uh, one theme on which they could rally. And it's not new. They had been taking increasingly interesting commitment uh, towards uh, women's economic empowerment. But this was the biggest visibility, should we say, mm-hmm. of their commitment towards it. Mm-hmm. And um, what... Can, end- can I just yeah, add something yeah, here? No, do, no, yeah. to, because you say, how do they work together? I think it, it's difficult to... Uh, as, you, as you say, these are very different countries, so mm. one could think of Saudi Arabia as, as, uh, as not necessarily the most advanced. But and include the um, US in that at the moment you know, take, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you start looking at the uh, disparities that you have, um, one example I, I tend to give is that uh, countries are not bad in everything. And so countries uh, like um, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, in terms of women's participation in the labor force, it may not be a very high percentage. However, when you get into pay gap, once women are in the workforce, there's no pay gap mm-hmm. or very little. So as opposed to other countries where you have that, it's it's an interesting yeah. uh, element and we should take it into consideration. Yeah, but definitely that, that idea of not everybody being bad in the same way. Yeah. Mm. Whatever bad, I mean, bad in quotation marks. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. Yes, you didn't see my quotation yeah. marks. For, for the recording. <laughs> they, are, but they definitely were there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. So what, um, in this full page that we that we got in the communique. What were the major policies and major challenges that uh, the G20 were looking to address with relation to this issue? Uh, the G20 in that communique was mainly picking up on the communique and a number of elements that were in the W20 communique, and that's the other shoe that just fell now. Uh, it's the engagement groups that you have within the G20. Not having a permanent office like another institution such as the World Bank or the IMF and all that, mm. the presidency of a given year is extremely important. And what they do is extremely important because it sets the agenda, mm. it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it relies also on the feedback it gets from the engagement groups. Those are fo- groups that focus on specific issues. So the B20 will focus on business, W20 on women, yeah. C on mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and so the, the real driver of this, of, of this aspect of the G20's work is the W20. It is the W20 which mm-hmm. brings together the voices from all G20 countries uh, and uh, the, the people from organisations, whether academics, uh, uh, business or, um, or um, civil society, mm-hmm. that want to uh, ensure that you get into women's mm-hmm. economic empowerment. Sure. And so, and so as part of their work, they consult with sort of wider experts... Yes, and yes. and try and collate that together and bring that forward into sort exactly. of concrete policy yep. recommendations. Yep. So the, during the year, you have a number of meetings mm-hmm. taking place, uh, consultations. Whether it's uh, usually virtual because yeah. it, uh, it it is too costly, yeah. uh, and uh, it bring these consultations. Uh, the, the, the sorry, the consultations will help develop policy briefs. These policy briefs will be then taken down to a one-page communique. Mm-hmm. This is what everybody agrees upon. It will be, um, there will be a consensus at mm-hmm. the W20 summit, which this year is taking place on the 1st and 3rd of October. Right. And these will be presented, the recommendations will be presented to the uh, Sherpa. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And um, how are these uh, communiques framed? Are they, are they framed as kind of, it would be nice if we could do this, or, or are there sort of concrete sort of we are we are committing to do this, and if we don't do this, then there will be. It's a mixture. Okay, it's mm-hmm. a mixture. If you're talking about the leaders communicate, mm-hmm. it's a mixture of uh, yes, women should have uh, should be in a position to reach their full potential mm-hmm. and blah blah. That's quite broad. Yeah. Uh, but then they supported World Bank setting up the Women Entrepreneurs Financial Initiative, which basically provides funding and other elements to help women entrepreneurs in developing countries. Mm. And uh, many of the G20 countries actually funded the right. initiative. So it's it's an important input into that kind of development. They also supported initiatives uh, in terms of digital inclusion. 
um, particularly for women and girls. And uh, they also agreed to set up a task force, a business women leaders task force, which would bring together the business side, so the B20, and the women's side, the W20. Mm-hmm. And this is in the process of being set up right now. I ask a slightly practical question about the W20. Is it largely women <laughs> or are there men in it? <laughs> it is exclusively right now women. Is it? Mm-hmm. Was that a p- sort of purposeful decision or is that just how it's what's happened? I think it's what's <clears throat> happened. But if you're looking for expert working on gender issues, mm. I can tell you uh, with the organisation of the forum that I am struggling mm. <laughs> to find men yeah. that are really involved in in uh, discussions gender. on gender budgeting, gender mm-hmm. responsive budgeting, mm-hmm. or in you know interested in uh, un- unless they, I think that's changing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but it right now, if you're looking for people who've got expertise, it tended to be women that were looking mm. at women's issues. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have in businesses uh, champions of gender equality. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that men are not involved. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, nothing's going to happen if we if men are not involved in uh, in the change. Because often I think when we're talking about gender issues, it, it's women who are talking about it. And it's interesting yes. that, that, that yeah. even at that top, top level, it's women. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, um, the Canadians this year have started using the word feminist. Mm-hmm. And it was actually quite interesting last year at the W20 summit. There was a panel of very senior people, including Angela Merkel, um, Christine Lagarde, uh, Chrystia Freeland, and uh, you know, woman uh, Finu Khan from the Bank of America and Queen Maxima. So, so very senior, powerful women who were there. And the journalists ask, are you feminist? Some people just said, yes, <laughs> right away. And um, I, I, I really understood Angela Merkel's dilemma, if I can trust the interpretation that I was listening to, because she was speaking in German, um, where she was referring to what she conceived as the feminist's of the time that preceded her. So the women who went to jail, uh, the suffragettes, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, all these, this movement of really breaking boundaries and all that. And, mm-hmm. and she said, well, I, I, I would be taking a word that doesn't really correspond to what I have done because she didn't feel she was part of that movement. Mm-hmm. And so then the conversation continued. And um, if I remember well, it was uh, Queen Maxima who said, well, for me, uh, being a feminist is or being in a feminist society is that women have the choice. They can choose what they're going to be and what they're going to do. And at that moment, anybody who felt uncomfortable on the panel said, if that's the definition, I'm a feminist. Right. So so the the word feminist is one that I, d- I don't think people agree yet mm. on uh, on what it means. Uh, and I think that there's work to be done. And it, for me, if a label is going to stop people from going forward, let's forget about the label and let's keep on working on, on recommendations and things yes. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you said about um, the experts and not having enough, not having many male experts. Do you think it's because males fear that they shouldn't be a part of the conversation and Mm. they fear to have a say about gender inclusiveness? Do you think that's the case? I think it can be the case for some men. There are all sorts of of elements that would... But Ben, do you feel, let's say, let me... We've got one man here. How do you feel about that? Because you're part of the steering committee. Represent all men. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, you know, okay. So for fifty percent of the population, um, now you know what it's like. <laughs> for Chatham House, for Chatham House at least. Down with all female panels. Um, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Gender okay. equality. We're not yeah. talking about. I, dis- uh, I disagree with you on that one. You want we'll to have our female that. panel? Just for the moment. Well, I'm stuck sometimes with. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yep. yeah, no, I don't know. I think um, I suppose the generous, the generous. Uh, interpretation is that men feel that it's not really their place to start talking Mm. about these issues Mm -hmm. and start saying well 
I know, um, I recognise that this is a problem and I know exactly what must be done. So yeah. I'll tell you all, sit yeah. down the second women part and listen to is me the problem. about this. But <laughs> I think that's the generous interpretation. I think, yeah. Um, yeah. I think regrettably, a lot of, for a lot of men as well, it probably just isn't something that's a factor. Mm-hmm. Or if they're having to weigh up their attendance at various different yeah. events or committees support. and things that right. it's actually obviously it w- it's a, it's a kind of it would be a nice thing <laughs> to support but actually I'm going to go to the thing about macroeconomics you know like yeah. and I think that's that's something that I mean I don't know I don't have any evidence either way but I feel like they're both things are happening at once mm-hmm. there's there's some men that are very sort of passionate about it but don't know how to engage exactly. and some men for whom engaging is just not really a priority Okay, well, fair enough, and I think you're probably fair. right, and there's no wrong answer to this, and there's, you know, different reasons for which people engage or don't engage mm-hmm. in uh, in uh, the kind of action that needs to be, that need to be put forward. But I think that, do you remember discussions in, you know, the, let's say in 2005 or four, about... Um, being having sustainable businesses and so on and so forth. I mean, there was if you had an event or you had a discussion about sustainability, you had many people who would say, well, yeah, sure, that would be nice, but right now we've got yeah. a bottle line and all that. Mm-hmm. Now it's recognised that it's part of what you mm-hmm. have. And I think this yeah. is the movement you see in companies of having a recognition that the more diverse, and I'm, re- I'm using the word diverse, but you said gender is 50% of the population, shall we say? Mm-hmm. But the more diverse your team is going to be, the more chances you ha- you have of making decisions that will be mm. good for the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's something that I'm sort of pessimistic about. I think it, but I agree that I think it's it's a process of change, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 a it seems like it's a constant effort to persuade some more people each year that actually it's something that yeah. really needs to be yeah. sort of mm-hmm. integrated into what you're thinking about. Um, it's it's also that it is becoming more and more obvious and uh, through research that is being done that it is good for all Mm. not just good for women but it is good for all it will be good for the children it will be good because there's more income at home then children will have a better chance of eating properly their health Mm. is going to be better they'll be better at school they'll be able to stay in school you know all these elements so it 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 is better for society as a whole actually on the 25 by 25 is that going to be significantly more difficult for some of the members of the G20 than others? They, you have to take into consideration their own yeah. circumstances. But I so. mean, like, there, is the gap bigger between some countries yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah. obviously. It so is, wi- yeah. which ones might it be trickier for or might have to work well, a bit harder? Well, I mentioned at? earlier Saudi Arabia, yeah. which yeah. is uh, definitely uh, a country that will it will be easier for countries like the UK, Canada, mm-hmm. yeah. etc. But uh, some of the countries have lots of women working but in the informal sector so if you're talking about Mexico uh, and Brazil you have many women that are not on the radar Mm -hmm. so how can you have better conditions for these women and Mm -hmm. include them in the calculations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. another element that stops and we we tend not to talk about it or talk about it too much is um, the fact that one of the elements that stops women going back to work is caring for children and uh, mm-hmm. for caring for their parents also because it's becoming more and more common that you have to do that. And if you start calculating particularly in countries or if you're living in London, many families come to the conclusion that it's better for the uh, the one of the partners at least to stay at home because daycare is too expensive mm-hmm. and uh, if you're going to have somebody who comes and cleans the house, it's too expensive, etc., etc. So having affordable daycare quality Uh, daycare is extremely important and those are the elements that you need to push on governments to make a decision because there is a cost associated with it it's not just a good it would be nice Mm -hmm. this has a cost but it will have a major impact because london i think has the highest number of women who don't return to the workforce after having possibly giving birth the whole of like the country just because childcare is just astonishing yeah Yeah. so how is the global economic and finance program at chatham house sort of involved in the w20 g20 stuff like what what have you guys been sort of 
organizing or running? Right. So since 2015, we've been working closely with the countries hosting the G20. And this year especially, we're working closely with Argentina because we are an official knowledge partner. And what we do is that during the year, we provide consultations, we provide workshops where we bring together people from different backgrounds, different industries. It could be an academic background, businesses, governments. They mostly come together and they speak about certain topics such as digital inclusiveness and how that affects um, women's economic empowerment and how that can be changed. So that happened this year in January in Buenos Aires and Stefan was there and she was able to um, come back and give us great feedback on that. And then um, we had another consultation in Ottawa in May and it was about bridging G7 and G20, mm -hmm. especially because this year the G7 summit, well, it just passed over the weekend and Some I'm sure everyone photos. heard about that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was discussing how G7 and G20 can work together. Better together. Work, yeah, better together, <laughs> that's it, on um, gender inclusiveness. And so we we provide that and then we come back with meeting summaries, which we compose. And this, we had consultations last year as well. And this normally happens before the forum. So during the forum, we have other people from different backgrounds and the forum is much bigger. It's two days and it's on different topics. And we also, we, we come back with the information brought from the consultations. And then towards the end, we, we bring all of these together, all of these ideas and recommendations, which Stefan had mentioned. And with this, because um, we do have the chair of the W20 there, Susana Balbo, who will be representing Argentina for W20. And she'll be there and she can go back with all this information. At least what we think yeah. is important. <laughs> which will eventually feed into G20 in October and then hopefully make a change. It's amazing, mm, actual direct. impact, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. actual measurable um, Just to, to go yes, back to, to what Roxanne was saying right now is that it, it's a process. Mm. What we do is a process. Yeah. So, so we have these consultations. Uh, they can be in London or in other cities. Mm -hmm. It brings more people together. So we develop mm -hmm. a network at the same time, but they feed in ideas uh, and, and um, I suppose push us to explore further some of the issues mm -hmm. or some of the barriers that uh, women have to face when they go back or when they have to enter the labor force. Mm -hmm. um, but we had some fascinating ones, actually, you know, the, the sort of uh, yeah. some of the meetings we had in uh, here in London. Yeah. Last year, we had a meeting Tina with Tina Chen, Tina Chen yeah. who that used to be the uh, uh, you attended. I was there. It was, yeah. it was a bloody great meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Just after Trump was. Yeah. Yep. As yeah. a typical bloke, I was not there. You were not there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, Tina Chen was absolutely astonishing. Yeah, she was great as well. Great. Someone said. But also, Michelle Bachelet, oh, we had well. uh, yeah. before that the uh, president, well, former president of Chile now. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was quite interesting to hear from a head of state as to how she was treated how uh, also uh, she brought about some policy changes mm -hmm. to bring movement in yeah. her country. Mm -hmm. And she was also a UN Women director, the first mm -hmm. director of UN Women. So she had this broad experience that she was bringing to the table and that was fascinating. Could you explain who Tina Chen is as well? Because we all know. <laughs> yes, <but laughs> Tina Chen is, was assistant to Barack Obama she was the chief of staff to Michelle Obama and she was the executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with the change in administration, uh, mm -hmm. Tina has now uh, another job and she went back to the legal profession. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask a question about um, whether you think this is a particularly powerful moment for these issues to be being discussed in light of Me Too, Time's Up, do you think these sort of civil society movements, more so than in the past perhaps, are sort of really going to enable change or are they just a kind of blip? Are they a temporary thing? Especially sort of... like, in, you know, when you mentioned sustainability previously, mm. you know, about how that was seen as sort of a 
marginal issue. Yeah, or a fashion. Would be a nice. A fad. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now it is sort of very ingrained in, in policy and in business. I think there are a number of elements that, uh, to be honest, I feel that we're in, you know, sort of, we've reached a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to be really, really careful to make sure that we keep our eye on the ball and continue pushing. Um, because of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up and Balance Ton Port in France and so on and so forth, um, the notion of accountability has been brought to the attention of everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think it it is an issue of human rights, obviously, mm-hmm. but also accountability, because many people were aware of what was happening and nobody said anything. It's the same thing as if you see that there is a problem in your office and you don't say anything, this you are accountable and you have a responsibility. So I think that is a very, very important message that came out through that. Um, gender pay gap. Same thing happening at the same time. And uh, all of a sudden, people who thought, oh, I'm doing fine, I've got a good salary, but women. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it changed the perception. Mm-hmm. And I think in people's eyes also saying, it's not fair. Mm-hmm. If you ask kids, uh, should I be paid the same thing as um, your uncle here or whatever, they would say, of course, you're doing the same thing, you should be paid the same thing. Uh, but somehow it doesn't happen that way. So what you know? What can we be done? So I have the impression there is really something right now, and that's why we chose this this very non Chatham Housey title <laughs> for the uh, forum, which is no going back. Okay, so we've reached a certain point. Let's go forward. Mm. Press for progress. That was the uh, the slogan behind um, International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these elements we we need to keep on going now, and it's the moment to push. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, obviously, the complicated setup, the, the nature of sort of how, how these things are run. It must mean that the presidency is very, very important. It's uh, essential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this year, the presidency is Argentina. Mm-hmm. Who was it last year? Who is it next year? Mm-hmm. And how might that change? Or what, what does that, what concerns might that raise specifically? Okay. Uh, Happy that you asked that question because it brings the notion of the Troika. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there is no uh, permanent office for the G20, the actual presidency of one year works in close collaboration with the Troika, so the presidency of the previous year and the presidency of the year to come. So last year it was Germany. Uh, So Argentina worked very closely with Germany and next year is Japan. So they have started already working with Japan. The following year should be Saudi Arabia. So next year, Japan will work with Argentina and Saudi Arabia. So that's the way it goes. And this is the only way that you can ensure some continuity. Because if not, it's well, it's the only way. You could read the papers, but <laughs> but it is a it is a way to make sure that um, you know if some issues were left a little bit aside because there were other issues that were more important, maybe it's a time to bring them up again, and that conversation happens. Germany, I can imagine certain things were a real priority, and um, when it comes to gender issues and women's issues, Argentina, I can imagine they're probably quite similar. I wonder whether culturally things might be different with Japan and whether Saudi Arabia in the future they might be different. I mean, how how does the presidency shape the actual outcomes, I suppose? You've got to separate here the presidency of the G20 mm. and the W20. Yeah. So the W20 will continue to focus on the issues that are important. So this year in Argentina, we had uh, they picked up on the three issues that... Uh, Germany was working on last year. It's not over. It's labour mm-hmm. inclusion, digital inclusion, financial inclusion. Mm-hmm. But because of the specific context in Argentina, the fourth theme was rural women, mm-hmm. uh, which also built with the um, CSW, the uh, Commission on the Status of Women, who focused this year on rural women. So it, they all tie into each other. In Japan, uh, the situation is different in Japan, but they do have 
a plan that they set up with uh, Womenomics. So it, it, we'll have to see how that... It, in it For the presidency, it's playing its own, um, its own agenda mm-hmm. with the global agenda. So it, choosing the priorities is also is always a, a bit of a tricky moment. Mm-hmm. But if uh, everybody says, well, you know, Saudi Arabia, for instance, um, it's too early to do something, well, nothing is ever going to happen. So we're all preparing, we're trying to also uh, engage a discussion with Saudi Arabia. And the sooner you engage people in the conversation, the easier it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of 2018... You're sat there, it's speculative, so you're sat there and looking back at your year of running this forum, what do you want to be reflecting on? Like, what do you, what will look like success from that forum? Hmm. If that makes sense. Very good question. Well, it does make sense. (laughs) If uh, the recommendations we develop Mm -hmm. during uh, the uh, forum Mm -hmm. are actually taken up, by the W20 and taken up by the G20, even if it's one recommendation, it will be a success. Mm -hmm. But what you always have to remember, and it was the case in uh, Australia when we had the 25 by 25, the W20 was not, or the group that was working on that was not the only one bringing that forward. It was a recommendation that was brought, but the employment ministers were looking at it, the, uh, so that's the labor, uh, the OECD, and and different organizations were already toying with that goal, that target. Mm -hmm. So the more we can work with the other engagement groups, mm-hmm. uh, the W20, the, the the G7 also, mm-hmm. and the more we can find a common voice, what would move the needle? Mm-hmm. I think the better it's going to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, thanks. And um, so, Roxanne, last last word. Obviously, the forum is uh, invitation only. Yes. But how can people who are interested in this sort of issue and the issues that we've discussed today how can they follow what's going on at the forum well it will be on twitter so hashtag ch no going back so make sure to look at that on july 9th and 10th and afterwards as well and parts of the forum will be filmed (laughs) so we will have video highlights um, published on the ch website afterwards and hopefully we will have a meeting summary so people can read up on that after the forum. I think that's one of the outcomes of the also world. will be the recommendations. So that's yes. that's one of the elements yes, that would course. definitely be on, on the website. Right. Okay. Yes. Well, Roxanne, Stefan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank, thank you, you for having us. Brilliant. Well, I think for the next episode, Ben, you should just do all the interviews, really. I think that's what we've learned. Yeah. I think that's what we've learned in this episode. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Too much frim. Yeah. Got to get that balance. Got to rebalance the frim, the frim Horton <laughs> from Shui. Absolutely. That's it. For this episode. We hope you also enjoyed our live episode that came from the London conference. Yes. Yeah, it's been a double a double podcast week. Yeah, yeah a lot for the of first us. time. I hope it's uh, I hope it's been interesting. It was such a wide ranging event, you know. Yeah. We had some really interesting people from six different countries. Yeah. And just their differing perspectives on trust and encouraging political participation was was so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah, and I think it ma- really made me reflect on the importance of public engagement mm. for research. Obviously, these conferences that we go to as part of Chatham House's work are really important, but they're not enough on their own to... No. You've got to engage with ordinary ordinary voters, you know. Yeah, and also um, to have that global perspective too, not just be... I think often being based in London, even working for an international think tank, one can sometimes be a bit UK-focused in your head. And yeah. actually hearing from the guy from Germany and hearing from Italy and Latvia... No, not Italy, sorry... Hearing from Latvia and France and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it made me feel incredibly ignorant about political systems in other countries. Cause, yes. Yeah, mm. I mean, the, the the lessons from Latvia 
fascinating um, were so interesting yeah 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 and a completely different balance in terms of what they thought about uh the uni- the european union mm-hmm. as opposed to their own sort of national politicians and yeah amazing so Great, but we should detain you no longer next episode is the day of trump's visit to the u.s the uk the fated day the day has arrived the fated day and so we have a great podcast lined up for that but in the meantime we've now got quite a quite a large library of of past episodes if you've missed any please do go back and don't forget to uh, rate us and leave us a review on whatever platform you use if you enjoy it because it's important to help people find to find us yeah and follow chatham house on twitter at chatham house and do get in touch if you've got any questions or ideas for us but in the meantime i'm ben horton I'm Agnes Frimpton and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Cool.